Good morning, I'm Aubrey, I'm with Jay, one of the pastors here. If you brought along a copy of the Bible, please turn to our gospel reading, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Jesus tells us, judge not that you be not judged. And I think we love this. It's like the bumper sticker that proclaims, my God is too big for any religion. This is kind of a mantra. Not just in our society, but I mean, it's in our guts. We, we feel what's good about this. At the same time, we live in this moment where there is this huge kind of constant and seemingly never-ending judgment. Just think about our political environment right now. On both sides, we champion tolerance, except for tolerating the other party. It seems like we want to be inclusive of all people who don't look like us, just so long as they don't think like us. They can be any color, any orientation, we will tolerate, right? But we have a hard time tolerating different views. There's this kind of collective sense that our world has gone all out of joint, all the way down to its core. A couple of examples. After Trump was elected president back in 2016, there were these reports from university campuses where faculty members canceled classes because students were weeping and terrified. They were traumatized from the shock and the fear of Trump being elected president. And since then, in some of those same settings, there's grown up this hostile environment to conservatives and to evangelicals. And then on the other side of the political spectrum, when the editor of Christianity Today wrote an editorial arguing that President Trump should be removed from office, the response from Trump was to accuse Christianity Today of being a far-left magazine that, quote, would rather have a radical-left non-believer who wants to take your religion and your guns for president. We live in this moment where over and over these things are playing out on social media and in the news, where right across the political spectrum, there's this huge push for tolerance at the same time as there is this constant stream of judgment and condemnation. It's a confusing moment right now. Not long ago, NPR's wonderful uh, show, Invisibilia, did an episode entitled The Call Out about a woman right down the road in Richmond who was in her late 20s and she was called out. Her name is Emily. She got called out on social media for something that had happened over a decade before when she was in high school. Apparently, an inappropriate photo of a female student in her school was posted online and Emily responded with an emoji making fun of this girl who had had this picture of her online. It was clearly cyberbullying that happened in high school. Over a decade later, this is now exposed online, what Emily did. And the post that denounced her for what she did went viral. And she became the object of a nationwide hate group. She was banned from the punk music scene, which she said was her whole life. She was the headliner for a band. She didn't leave her house for what she said was months. Her friends dropped her. She was scared and traumatized and alone, and she just wanted to vanish. 
Now, the guy who called her out, he was also interviewed by Invisibilia. They asked him if he cared about the pain Emily endured. And he said, quote, no, I don't care. I don't care because it's obviously something she deserved. And it's something that's been coming. I literally do not care what happens to you after the situation. I don't care if she's dead, alive, or whatever. Now, the interviewer of Invisibilia was uncomfortable with that and pressed. The interviewer, Hannah Rosen, she showed skepticism. um, And she pressed him, and he revealed that he was a victim. He had been abused by his father throughout his childhood. And so to his own, his own zealotry was being fueled by this psychological wound. What I'm saying is we live in this brutal cultural moment where not only do the abused abuse, but you can destroy someone you don't even know through social media where there's no personal connection that can allow for apologies or forgiveness or reconciliation. These are the waters that we all know that we're swimming in. Wouldn't it be so helpful if in the midst of all of this pain and shrill rhetoric and fears, if we could follow Jesus, judge not, lest you be not judged. When we are judged by someone who seems so cocky, that they are just looking down on us. Whenever judgment is driven by a brutal self-confidence and pride, it doesn't help. I mean, it wounds. It only exacerbates the situation. And yet, when we read Jesus' words, judge not, lest you be not judged, and we stop and reflect for a moment on what this looks like in practice, it gets really complicated, doesn't it? Like, is Jesus telling us, You don't even have to discern evil. Like you you don't even need to name it. All you need to do is bring mercy. Mercy only and always. That seems complex, doesn't it? That cannot be what he's saying. I mean, after all, if the first sentence of this morning's passage was judge not lest you be judged, remember the last sentence? Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs? That sounds like a massive act of judgment, doesn't it? Like he's just divided the world up into good and evil. And later on in Matthew, we've got this super famous passage where he says there's two kinds of people in the world, goats and sheep. Now, either Jesus is like, so unintelligent, right, that he doesn't know that within three seconds he's, he's offering a command that he then violates. Or maybe he is intelligent. It's important to hear Jesus out all the way. He starts with this pithy little proverb, judge not lest you be judged. But proverbs are clever, not because you can take them and apply them to any and every situation all the time. I mean, Proverbs chapter 26 verse 4 says, don't judge a fool in his folly, lest you be like him. And then verse 5 says, judge a fool in his folly, lest he's wise in his own eyes. Now, does, does the Bible not know that it put two verses right together that fundamentally contradict each other? No, that's how Proverbs work. It always takes wisdom to know when to apply a proverb. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. 
Sam pointed out to us last week, Jesus is in the, in the mode of Solomon right now in this sermon. He's acting like a wisdom teacher here. He's talking here about a type of judgment. Look at verse 2. Judge not lest you be judged. Verse 1. Now verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you measure, it will be measured to you. And he's not talking primarily about um, some kind of psychological thing where the way I treat you is the way you treat me. Is that true? Yeah, we know that. But that is not what he's talking about. He's saying the way you judge is the way you will be. One day, in the far future, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that's how you're going to be judged. He's talking about the final judgment of God. He's saying that we... That when we forget that one day all of us must stand before the judge and none of us will sit in the seat of the judge. When we forget that, when we imagine that we ourselves are sitting in unimpeachable majesty on the judgment seat of Christ, then when we forget that none of us are there, it, it seeps into us. And it comes out in this tone of self-righteousness. Listen to verse 3. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your eye, right? We have an ophthalmologist in our church. Can you imagine? He walks in to do your eye surgery and there's big like logs sticking out of his eye, sticks and thorns. And he's like, you know, he can't see your cornea for your nose. He doesn't know the difference, right? That's what Jesus is saying here. When there's a massive thing in your eye, you can't judge rightly. Like your judgment is distorted. You can't see right. He's saying that my hypocrisy makes it impossible for me to judge correctly. And when you're judged by a hypocrite, how does it feel? Who wants to be at the mercy of a judge who no longer recognizes that he himself is a sinful person in need of forgiveness? You want to be in that courtroom? This is the kind of judging that our Lord forbids. It's the judging as if we sit on God's throne. As if we are beyond judgment. Now where does this leave us? Well, notice verse 5. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, he's not against judgment. He's against bad judgment. Misjudgment. Judges who don't know that they themselves will stand before the judgment seat of God. When it comes to judgment, you've got to start with yourself. There is no getting around it. It's written on every page of the Bible. All of the evil in the world comes out of our heart. My rebellion against God, my disobedience to God. So things have to get straight in my heart. Now, how do we do that? How do we deal with our own darkness? Well, Jesus has something to say about that in this passage. 
Listen to verse 2. Matthew 7 verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, you will be measured by it. Now on the one hand, this is terrifying. I'm going to be judged by the same merciless standards that I apply to my enemy. To the person that I have a personality conflict with. You know, that giant excuse that we use to get away with being jerks. Here's the deal. As you hear Jesus saying that, the key is to remember who is saying it. Jesus, who came to us in the name of forgiveness, who shed his blood for us, He's the one saying it. Now when you look at his face and you see his lips forming these words, then there suddenly rises up behind the terrible threat. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Suddenly, rising up behind that threat is a totally different saying. If you're a Christian, you know the measure you'll be measured by. It is the measure of mercy. The measure of infinite compassion. The measure of the sacrifice that was made for us on the cross. We are debtors to whom everything has been given. Once we recognize who it is that's telling us this, and we see that we've been spared the judgment, that we are pardoned sinners, now our Lord's threat takes on an even more fearsome tone. He's telling us, if you go on judging others as if you've forgotten your place at the judgment seat, despite the fact that I, your Savior, bring you forgiveness, then you are placing yourself outside of my grace. Outside the consequences this has for your own relationship to your neighbor, you are putting yourself back on the level of calculation and retribution. And you will yourself be the first victim of your attitude. If you want judgment despite all the grace of God then just ask for it and you can have it when you are filled with fear that if the Democrats win the election it's all over that if Bernie socializes medicine or if Trump gets back in office or you just don't want anybody to talk about it anymore and you're so afraid that even me mentioning this is going to rip our church apart? When, when you're driven by fear and by anger at your neighbor or your boss or your child or your parent, what do you do in that moment? See, he's not asking us to repress that. That doesn't help. What you do in that moment is you remember our Lord's words. When that fear, when that anger, when that confusion, when it rises up and you remember our Lord's words, you can determine the level on which you stand, the level of judgment or grace, and which you choose will decide how you're going to deal with that person you fear or don't like. And how we deal with those with whom we disagree, 
how we deal with those who hurt us, this will determine how God approaches us. Whether as the judge who puts us to silence or as the crucified one who allows us to cry out, have mercy on me. Now we need to be careful here. Like I said, he's not asking us to choke down, to suppress, to repress our anger. He wants to deliver us from our anger, from our hatred, from our fear. He wants to redeem us and liberate us. Look, if there's someone in your life who is jealous of you and hates you, stop and think and ask yourself, what dark thoughts would rise in your mind if you were in their situation? And as you realize that, as you realize you yourself have the black impulses of jealousy and hatred, and that Jesus has nevertheless called you to himself and bestowed mercy on you, when you do that, when you do that act of remembering that, not of waiting on that memory to come to you, But when you deliberately discipline yourself to choose that memory, a miracle occurs. Our own hearts open to the stream of divine love. And we can turn to our neighbor, our enemy, in love. Look at it this way. Let me see a worship guide. Go back to our psalm. In the worship guide, page two, Psalm 139. This psalm tells us something that's terrifying. God knows everything. He knows every thought. He knows every action. He knows every attitude. He knows everything. Every word and deed. And in Psalm 139, I'm convinced the psalmist is terrified by that. It's a horrifying thing to face the fact that God knows. He knows every thought and word and deed, and he understands. Now, here's what's massively important to us. What is God's response to knowing and understanding? It is not forgiveness. It's pursuit. Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you've searched me and known me. Holy cow. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Oh no. Right? We've learned to hide our thoughts from afar, right? That's why we keep everybody off, right? You have searched out my path and my lying down and you are acquainted with all of my ways. Like, who reads that happily? Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. God is the one who can interrupt you and say, yeah, I know what you're about to say. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from you? Do you, see, do you see what God's response is to knowing everything? He knows the thought from afar. And so what does God do? He chases him. I can't get away from you. It's not that God offers me forgiveness based on knowing me. It's that he pursues me. 
He knows everything about you. He knows every thought you've ever had. He knows every attitude, every action, every deed, even those deeds that you don't even remember because of some kind of trick of psychology that you've buried. He knows it. And what is his response to it? To sweep it under the rug? No. His response is not pardon and forgiveness. His response is you can't get away from him. He's going to chase you down. Even where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Why does he want to flee from the presence of God? Because he knows everything. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the othermost parts of the sea, you're there. Even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day for darkness is as light to you. He can't get away from the God who knows him. Why is God pursuing him? Well, we know it from every page of scripture. Because he wants to give him forgiveness. He wants to love him. He wants to offer him the healing that he needs. It's not that God is love and so he accepts me just as I am. Do you see? There is nothing I can hide from God. There is no darkness where judgment doesn't find me. The point is, when there is evil in our world, we don't forgive because we understand. We forgive because we've been forgiven. That's what's going on in this passage. It's a fine difference, but it's all the difference. We don't forgive because we can understand the psychological or the sociological or whatever reasons they got there. That's not the Christian view of forgiveness. It's that I draw down on the forgiveness I've been given. There is evil in this world you cannot explain away and you cannot say, well, his mother. Or, well, their impoverished circumstances. That's why right now going on in our society is both messages. We need to tolerate and then the call out culture with its shrill acts of process less for condemnation. We're we're trying to do two things we cannot do. How do we weave through the middle of all this right here in this passage? We forgive because we've been forgiven. We forgive out of compassion because we know that we too stand under the judgment seat of God without the slightest shred of a defense and we have escaped only because, not because our evil didn't matter, but we escape because of God's grace and Christ's cross and so we stand on the same level with the person who's harmed us. And when we draw down on that, We become the kind of people who can grow in compassion because we learn to know our own heart. We can be involved in the political debates, but we can be marked by true civility because we live under the power of forgiveness. And it helps us to grow ever more free to forgive. Ever more courageous to name evil. Because we see ourselves without any illusion. First take the log out of your eye. Then help your neighbor. And so, because we see the log in our eye, because we've gotten rid of it, we can see clearly and we can judge in a way that heals. Only those who have been forgiven 
can bear the healing power of forgiveness into a world that needs it. Let's pray.